This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. When social media platforms amplify or minimize your speech, is that itself an act of speech? And should legal liability attach to the platform that uses algorithms to make those decisions? Cato's Paul Matsko details the next big fight over social media platforms and free speech. Many state actors around the globe have decided to meddle with social media platforms. The United States has not yet decided uh, the degree to which it would like to meddle in uh, social media platforms, but there is a rather large contingency that is looking askance at Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, uh, the whole meta meta group of uh, platforms. What should we know about how content gets served up to us on these platforms? So you should think of um, social media platforms as existing on a spectrum. They're not all created equal. They all function in different ways. And we use uh, one big label to describe all of them, which does a disservice to the differences between them. So think of social media as being on a spectrum from familiarity to novelty. So some platforms serve you up content that is from familiar sources. So if you go on Facebook, you're not finding pictures of some other random person's kid. No, you're finding pictures of your niece's newborn child, right? If you go on Instagram, most of the content you receive is from people you already follow. So some celebrities avocado toast pictures is what's being served to you in your feed. So they exist farther towards the familiarity side of the spectrum. Um, in a sense, what Facebook did, it took your real life social relationships and digitized them. So the idea is it's a circle of people you already knew offline and you've just moved that relationship, those encounters online. Now, there are newer social media platforms that are further to the other end of the spectrum. So TikTok prioritizes uh, unfamiliarity. It, 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 it foregrounds novelty. So most of the content you receive on a platform like TikTok and to a lesser extent, YouTube was not content from people you already knew. So if you go to what's called the for you page on TikTok, their little algorithm susses out what you're interested in based on what you have previously watched and liked and engaged with. Um, the most important of those metrics being how long you spend watching videos. It gets a really good sense of what you like. It might actually know you better than you know yourself or willing to admit to yourself and serves you more content like that by complete and utter strangers. So, so think of social media on this spectrum from novelty to familiarity. And um, that is has really radical potential for transforming how uh, culture happens, how politics happens, and how our society functions. Uh, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I will say that uh, Instagram, because I don't, I don't use TikTok, uh, Instagram serves to me primarily people being injured and people preparing uh, dishes of pasta. Uh, so uh, with TikTok, what's the, you know, what is the essential difference? That essential difference has potential, but how does TikTok do what it does as compared with these other platforms? Right. So it's, it's that it is um, its algorithm 
is very good at what it does. I mean, that's that's hidden. No one has access. It's a black box. You know, who knows how the algorithm is written and how it works. But it is very good at serving you um, content from strangers that you want to engage with. It's actually kind of like an old search engine called StumbleUpon from back in the early earlier days of the mass consumer internet. Um, so our older listeners might remember those days. It's kind of that, but in a social media form. And the way I put it is that TikTok is a discovery algorithm posing as a social media platform. And why that has transformed the potential is that it's not relying on your social network to give you news and information and to help you discover things. Um, and so it allows uh, interesting ideas, funny content, uh, takes on the news ideological information to bubble up from anywhere. So anybody uh, can have the similar chance of having a video that they produce for TikTok go viral. And that opens the doors. It, it bypasses kind of traditional gatekeepers. So, you know, if you want to be a political candidate in the pre-internet era, you go to you know your local party district, you make connections with party leaders, you raise money from wealthy people, you go through the routine gatekeepers to get access. But what platforms like this allow for musicians, for politicians, and so on, it allows them to bypass those traditional those traditional routes to access, to influence, and do it through a social media app, do it through the algorithm. So there's a candidate in Florida named Ken Russell, well, a failed candidate. He was a Miami commissioner who uh, has half a million followers on TikTok now because he basically would piggyback off of popular TikTok trends and turn it into get out the vote videos. He calls them instead of thirst traps, vote traps. Um, he has a rising profile. He's probably the most prominent uh, politician on TikTok. And he, he would be a nobody under the normal system, right? And yet he actually has a national following just because he's good at TikTok. It's only a matter of time uh, that someone rides that process, that discovery mechanism all the way up to Congress and even to the, to the White House one day. In the same way that like, AOC or Madison Cawthorn rode Instagram to be some of the youngest members of Congress or Donald Trump, a complete nobody, bypassed the routine gatekeepers and wrote a Twitter account to the White House. Uh, that's that's going to happen with TikTok it's, and it's going to happen with these discovery focused platforms. To quote my children's favorite television show, and why should I care? Well, besides the fact, you know, again, it's it, it's the future, Caleb. It's, it's the future. The reason why you should care about this is that right now the courts and the platforms themselves are deciding what the future of these discovery-based platforms looks like. So right now, uh, the Supreme Court is considering a case for you know for decision next year, Ronaldo Gonzalez v. Google, which get is trying to decide whether or not. Uh, the algorithms themselves, in this case, YouTube's algorithm, um, but it will apply more broadly to anyone's algorithm, whether that counts as speech itself. So traditionally, the algorithms are considered kind of neutral, content neutral, so that by, you know, TikTok elevating some content and not other content, you can't then say that that's the platform's speech, because if it's the platform's speech, then... Um, then that changes kind of how its liability works for, for, for content. Because under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, platforms are not liable for content created by third-party users, by you. You know, your bad tweet, Kanye's anti-Semitic tweet, 
will not be held against Twitter itself based on whether they leave it up or not. Uh, it's not legally liable. But if Twitter posted the tweet saying something anti-Semitic, then they would be potentially liable for a defamatory statement or so on. So what they're trying to say with this court case right now is they're saying, look, uh, if it succeeds and the Supreme Court, you know, uh, rules on it in favor of the of the plaintiff, uh, it will mean that pl- that these platforms are liable for everything their algorithm does, everything it leaves silent or makes salient. So it has radical implications. It would utterly transform really all of the Internet, but especially these discovery based platforms. So it's it's a live political and uh, judicial issue, you know, jurisprudential issue right now. Um, I think it also matters because uh, the implications for speech are immense. I guess at the end of the day, uh, the difference here is just who eats the liability for something that would be actionable in civil court. Yeah. Yeah. And so traditionally, um, we have treated the Internet like a bookstore. Uh, There's a great piece by Jennifer Hellestin, Brett Score, where they talk about how Section 230 um, what it does is it takes the principles that courts applied to bookstores, which said that if you're if you have a book on your shelf that you're selling and that book says something offensive, criminally offensive or civilly offensive, you can't sue the bookstore. You have to sue the author. And by creating that precedent, that legal precedent, it it allows bookstores to flourish um, without that bookstores would be, a, a you know, the industry would be a shell of what it was. If every time they'd be constantly worried about offensive content, they would restrict what kinds of books of any kind of radical or even vaguely interesting content on their shelves. That's how the internet has been. It's been regulated like a bookstore, i.e. minimally. This would open the door to if the algorithm counts as speech, then just like holding a bookstore liable for what it, which books it chooses to put on the top shelf versus the bottom shelf or not on the shelves at all, they could be held liable for that. So it's a radical transformation. So think of that. Think of the internet like a bookstore. Right now it's being treated like a bookstore. They want to treat it like uh, kind of a pre-modern, tightly regulated. um, um, They want to extend that kind of liability, which would have a massive chilling effect on speech. I can see both uh, certain factions of left and right cheering for platforms to be held liable for what is prioritized by their uh, algorithms. Well, and I I should note that the concern is is very particular for a lot of these algorithmic platforms. It's something called shadow banning. So you'll hear that phrase used a lot in political discourse. And people throw the term around. They mean all kinds of different things by it. Uh, Oftentimes when conservatives use the term, they mean that there's some person at that platform, the head honcho of Twitter, is on there deciding to target conservative speakers and ban their content uh, by and a shadow ban. What the, the shadow part references is that rather than suspending an account or uh, removing content entirely, they merely downgrade it in kind of algorithmic importance. So fewer people see it. The content still goes up. The account is still active, but it gets kind of shunted off to the side, quarantined. It's thus been shadow banned. There is basically no evidence, um, and our former colleague Matthew Feeney did a, a great paper about this. There's no evidence of that kind of shadow banning, targeted shadow banning. But what does happen, and this is a really big concern, is informal uh, censorship via uh, what, what are called false positives. So if you're one of these big platforms, you have an impossible problem facing you, which is there is more, there is a human lifetime of content uploaded to YouTube 
every two to two and a half days. Huge, incredible amounts of video. You cannot moderate that manually with a human being. It would take all the human work hours of of uh, of of the globe, basically, some massive percentage of human lifetimes just to moderate the content. So you do it via algorithm. But the problem is, if you tell the algorithm we want to ban hate speech, and you give them an example of hate speech, ban Nazi speech, the algorithm can't tell the difference between a Nazi saying something online and something criticizing Nazis, a historical document, a historical document about Nazis. So you end up with a false positive problem, which is that the algorithm bans content that it can't tell the difference between racist speech and anti-racist speech, hateful speech and hated speech. And so it has a chilling effect on speech, even though that was not the intent of the platform. And that's and, a big problem. And imagine what's satirists problem, the problem satirists might find themselves in. I can imagine uh, a platform like TikTok or for for that matter, anything from Meta or Twitter trying to pawn off, you know, these human created algorithms and say, well, that's, well, that's, that's not our fault. That's, that's the algorithm. We didn't do that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's easier for them to uh, just, you know, it's but here's the thing, though, Um, they have tightened what their algorithm uh, flags over the last year or two. And that's I don't think because I mean, obviously, the platforms are doing that. They're making those decisions to kind of ratchet up how sensitive the algorithm is towards certain kinds of hate speech. They've done that, but they've done that because so many of us have been demanding that they do so. So there's been these calls for, we want you to remove, oh, you know, medical misinformation. We want you to remove post-George Floyd hate speech. We want you to remove. And so in response to that, they want to show that they're doing something and they do something. But the problem, the problem with that is that it creates, again, this false positive shadow banning problem such that black creators on TikTok and other uh, platforms will routinely complain that their videos um, calling out police abuse or calling out you know, racial inequities get flagged as if they're proposing those racial equities, as, as if they're defending police brutality. So that's the thing. The platforms are giving us what we're asking them to give us, but me, so maybe they shouldn't, and maybe we shouldn't ask them to. It's almost as if, uh, by sort of ratcheting up what gets flagged, uh, these platforms are essentially saying, don't talk about this stuff from, from any perspective. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the thing is that if you try to chill the speech, you know, hateful speech, if you try to chill hateful speech, you end up chilling the counter speech against that speech. And of course, as you know, as, as classical liberals, we follow um, the idea that the best response to bad speech is more speech. Of course, here we're riffing off of uh, Louis Brandeis, you know, Supreme Court Justice, his comment that the remedy to be applied to wrong and evil speech is more speech, not enforced silence. Because in attempting to silence only the bad speech, only the bad voices, you inevitably create problems for the good voices, the counter speech. Um, you can't have one without the other uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so that's where we should be kind of tolerant and patient as people. We should put up with terrible, horrible speech to some extent. I mean, there is an extreme beyond which, um, you know, and that that's where we get into this gray area. I don't think any of us want to be on a platform that just has that's filled with overt anti-Semitism, uh, uh, pornography and so on. It just makes it a miserable experience and we would just jet. 
but we should be willing to tolerate at least some offensiveness in order to get the chance to give as good as we got and, and in full measure. And if you believe that most people are operating in good faith, most people are not online internet trolls, then you should favor more speech because we can drown out the drown out the trolls and the fools online. There are uh, platforms that have attempted something like this. And Reddit seems like the example that I go to where uh, communities themselves, communities police themselves in a sense, and then whole communities get axed if uh, they turn uh, unsavory in a way that uh, the platform won't tolerate. But within communities, the you are encouraged to not say things that the community will abhor. Yeah, 100% true. I think platforms should be doing more of that kind of community crowdsourced content moderation. Uh, some are um, experimenting with that right now. If you go on Twitter, uh, there's a couple of things. There's a recent, they're trialing a program where if something gets lots of, um, basically they ask some users, kind of users who have their have trusted veracity. I'm not sure what, what their criteria for deciding that is, but they ask them, does this content, does this tweet look like something that's useful? Not whether it's not whether you agree with it or not, but do you think it's kind of like elevating the discourse? And if it gets a certain score, a, a bad score, it gets a disclaimer. If it gets a really bad score, they might pull it entirely. Uh, users can add context. And so they're they're trying to find ways to outsource, crowdsource content engagement rather than relying so heavily on automated content moderation with its false positive problem. And rather than just creating a free for all where no content moderation at all happens when I think most users want at least some content moderation. So they're kind of trying to do that. And there's promising signs of success. I mean, one study found that um, when they looked at those flagged content for hate speech. So speech flagged for, 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 you know, hateful content, only about one to 2% of that content was actually hate speech. 98% of it was false positives. In other words, the overwhelming majority of speech is good speech. There's relatively little hate speech done by relatively few people. And so I think if you outsource and you crowdsource, I think we can cut down on the influence of trolls and do so without bringing in the government, without heavy-handed uh, regulation or even heavy-handed intervention by the platforms themselves. Paul Matsko is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>